You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, God, and thank you, worship team, for leading us today. We get to preach again this weekend, which means for you, it is the second installment of Hager ER Adventures. If you were here last week, I talked about my son Jack and our recent trip to the ER. Today, it is my son Henry's turn. 16-year-old Henry had a diving board accident Friday night, and somewhere between bouncing his head off the diving board at Hollow Tree and landing in the water, he ended up with a split chin, two chunks missing out of each side of his tongue, and a big goose egg right in the center of his forehead, and... A concussion. So the Hagers made yet another late night trip to the ER, the second one in the last three months, for those of you who are counting, single-handedly trying to keep Mother Francis in business. So Henry's fine now, but in the hours after the accident, he had no short-term memory. I mean literally none. He couldn't remember anything that happened that day, and he couldn't remember anything from more than about a minute ago. It's like we were Bill Murray stuck in Groundhog Day, except the Hager version was the Groundhog Minute, because that was about all Henry could remember. His long-term memory was in pretty good shape. He could remember his name. He could remember um, the names of his siblings, even their middle names, which when you have five brothers and sisters, sometimes it's hard to do. So his, his long-term memory was in pretty good shape. But... When we left the hospital after being checked out by Bethel's own Roy Morrison, Henry still couldn't remember the accident. He also couldn't remember who drove him there. He couldn't remember the CAT scan. He couldn't remember Roy's name or even if Roy was a man or a woman. But as we walked out into the parking lot, one thing, one thing made it through the clutter and the fog of a concussion and a split chin and the big old knot on his forehead. And that was his phone. He remembered that he couldn't use his phone. So Roy says, hey, your brain doesn't need the visual stimulation. You need to take a break from screens for the next 48 hours. And we're walking down the parking lot. He doesn't remember any of this, but he's like upset because he doesn't get to use his phone for 48 hours. Not where's my wallet, not how long before I can go back to work, am I going to be okay? He was worried about his phone. You know, Henry's not alone in the felt importance of our phones. We use them for all sorts of things. Good things and bad things, important things, trivial things, useful things and wasteful things. But here's why I think the phone has become so important to us. Phones have shrunk the gap between knowing and not knowing. By that I mean it shrunk the elapsed time for when a question pops into your head, I wonder if, and then based on the speed of your internet connection, the answer pops up on your phone. So, for example, where are my kids? Which is useful for teenage, for parents of teens. Teens may not know this, but we actually can figure out where you are with an app called Find My Friends. 
Or maybe you're lost and you want to know where you are. Google Maps to the rescue will tell you where you are and how to get wherever you want to go. Or who was the actor who played whatever? IMDb will tell you the role and everything they've ever starred in. Can't remember the name of that song? Shazam it. And they'll tell you. And, maybe most importantly, if you ever wonder what's happening with 300 of your best friends, Instagram or Facebook will let you know. But I think what's happened over the last 15 years since we've had these things is we've become less comfortable with not knowing. We want answers to our questions and we want those answers now. Do I send my kids to this school or that school? Yes or no? I need to know. Do I take this job or that job? I need to know. Go to this college or that college or no college. I want to know now. And the danger is that impatience would spill over into our faith life. We get impatient with God. We just give up and answer the questions ourselves. We go our own way. And that's how our passage today fits in our summer series on wisdom. This passage is going to teach us to live with the not knowing and love that which we do know. Live with the not knowing and love that which we know. And our text today is Psalm 119, which is pretty easy to find in the book of Psalms because it's the longest psalm in the Bible. Yes, you heard that right. Our passage today is the longest psalm in the Bible, 176 verses. I know what you're thinking. Longest psalm equals longest sermon. Don't worry, Ross Strata will firmly keep the record for longest sermon. I am going to focus on just eight verses, verses 105 to 112. And I promise you, we will be done today before they run out of rolls at Spring Creek. Which, if you've been there, you know they never run out. Anyway. Okay, so, as you're turning or clicking or tapping or however you're getting to Psalm 119, verse 105, I'll give you a heads up on how we'll spend the next few minutes together. First is, we'll read the passage together, and then we're going to have kind of an overview or an introduction on the whole psalm And then we'll focus on how the original audience would have understood Psalm 119, this particular stanza, back then. And then lastly, we'll look at what the psalm means to us now or today, what its implications are. So, we'll read the text, we'll do an intro, then and now. That's how we're going to spend our time together. So, please stand with me and we'll read the text together. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 105. The text will be on the screen if you want to follow along there. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes 
forever to the end. You may be seated. You know, Psalm 119 is an interesting psalm. And like our passage last week, it is an acrostic. And by that I mean each line starts with uh, the same Hebrew letter of the alphabet, except for this psalm is what I'd call kind of a super acrostic. It's organized into 22 stanzas, and within each stanza, it has a, the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, verse 105 starts the noon, or in Hebrew, which is kind of like our letter N. So, eight verses for us today, not 176. And commentators differ on the date and the setting and the author, but rather than get into all that, here's what we know about the author of this psalm. He was an important person, likely a powerful person, and, and we know that if you were to read back to verse 23 and verse 161, it would say that the psalmist was persecuted by princes. And verse 46 says, the author speaks before kings. You know, the theme of this entire psalm is the superiority or the inexhaustibility of God's Word, which is Scripture. And Psalm 119 uses a set of eight synonyms for God's Word. So here they are. God's Word is described as God's laws, His precepts, His rules, His decisions, His commands, His testimony, His promises, and His sayings and His statutes. In fact, each stanza has no fewer than six different words for God's Word. But they all mean essentially the same thing here, which is, it is Scripture. And on the last point of introduction, if you were to look all the way back at verse 1 of Psalm 119, you'd see why we're including this passage in our wisdom series. Verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So this entire psalm is about the walk of believers, the walk of those who fear the Lord, and because they fear the Lord, they are wise. In fact, if, if you have the ESV and you were to look all the way back at verse 1, you'd see that the authors of the ESV give the title of this psalm, which is not part of the original text. They give it the title, which is the beginning of verse 105, where our passage starts today that says, Your word is a lamp to my feet. So let's look at how the original audience would have understood this stanza of Psalm 119. Back then, living with the not knowing and loving that which they knew. And I want to do that by dividing this stanza into three pieces. A faithful feet, faithful words, and a faithful memory. So verse 105, we see the faithful feet. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we have two images that combine here. God's word acting as a light or a lamp to guide. And then the path that symbolizes the life or the walk of the believer. So the meaning here is fairly straightforward. The Word of God, Scripture, guides our decision and it informs our walk. But there's a couple of interesting things about this. The first is, what does the text say is the, first, is the part of the body that gets the light? It's the feet, not the eyes. Last I checked, feet can't perceive light. So why does it say that? I think the answer to that is found in the light. So before there was a light bulb, there were lamps and lanterns. 
And in the Near East at this time, fuel was hard to come by. So lamps were usually small, and they looked something like this. Yes, so a little basin of oil, a place for a wick, and a single flame that would burn. Now, as you can see, they don't put off a ton of light. In fact, the light was so small that it generally could only illuminate your next step, which meant the only way the entire path gets lighted is if the person holding the light moves down it, unable to see the destination, but moving ahead one step of obedience at a time. And I think the types of decisions the psalmist has in mind here are big decisions. They are moral decisions. Questions of right and wrong. Not necessarily the questions we often have, this job or that one, this house or that one. But I believe it's about moral decisions because verse 106 describes these rules as righteous. Verse 107 and 109 tells us this is a matter of life and death. And verse 110 tells us that the wicked are trying to tempt or trick the psalmist into disobedience. And then we see in verse 110 that they're not successful. He stays obedient. The psalmist uses his knowledge of Scripture to stay obedient in the same way that Jesus does that in Matthew 4 during his temptation by Satan. Later in Scripture, the book of Hebrews tells us that we learn that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So here we have eyes that can't see, but the feet are still moving. And that's the walk of faith. Obedient feet are faithful feet. So let's continue on in this passage. We'll see the psalmist's faithful words in three places. The first is verse 106. that says, I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So you could read this as the psalmist has made a solemn oath to be obedient to God. The second is in verse 108 that says, Accept my free will offering of praise, O Lord. So free will offerings are those not specifically required as a result of sin by the sacrificial system. These are faithful words here because you have promises of obedience and you have extra or spontaneous praise. And then the third is in verse 112. Here the psalmist asked the Lord to incline his heart to perform the statutes of the Lord. Which means he is determined to obey the Lord. You know, which as an aside is a great example of the interplay between the divine will and the human will. So here you have the psalmist committing his human will to obedience. But at the same time, if you were to turn back to verse 36, you would see that same psalmist asking the Lord to incline his heart to the testimonies of the Lord. So it's a both and, both God and man's will, not an either or here. But there are some faithful words here that might be even more surprising. The first is that this praise in 108 comes after we learn about verse 107, where the psalmist is in really bad shape. It says his life is afflicted, and his prayer or request in 108, the text says, is to teach me your rules. 
When you look back in 106, the psalmist has sworn to keep the rules. And a few verses later, he's asking to be taught the rules. So how do you keep something that you don't know? I think the psalmist does know the rules. And so by that, I mean I think you take the second teach me should be as a request to continue to grow in the knowledge of of the Lord. Which means his prayer in the midst of suffering is not for the suffering to be removed, but for him to know the Lord more completely. It's not that it's wrong or unbiblical to pray for suffering to be removed. We see examples of that in Scripture. But this is a window into the psalmist's heart, what he desires most, which is to know the Lord. So first, we have faithful feet. Second, was faithful words. And last, we see a faithful memory. Look at verse 109. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. Today we might say, I took my life in my hands. The psalmist is at great personal risk or danger. And yet, in the midst of that, he does not forget God's law. You know, it it just kind of struck me, realizing this psalmist is being persecuted for his faithfulness, this question came to mind for me and, and for you. And it's this. Do we have a safe faith or a risky faith? Do we have a faith that leads us into safety and security and comfort? or one that leads us into conflict with the wicked. The psalmist here has a risky faith. And then look in verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. In verse 112, his determination to obey the Lord will last forever. His heritage, or maybe your translation might say his inheritance, shows how much the psalmist values the word of the Lord. Psalmist could have mentioned the inheritance of land or the material blessing that was typical for the Jews living under the Mosaic Covenant, both of which were promised to them, but perishable. Instead, the psalmist focuses on the word of the Lord, which endures forever. But let's explore what the concept of a faithful memory meant back then. So when this was written, before there were apps that had the Bible, before almost everyone had their own personal printed copy of the Bible, when Scripture was still in scrolls, for almost everyone, it was only read in group settings, generally during worship. Which means that to memorize God's Word then was incredibly difficult. Which is why the human writers used things like acrostics so that people could remember what God's Word said to help their memory. So flash forward about 2,500 years or more, and we have access to the Bible almost instantaneously. It fits in our pockets. It's searchable. And in terms of access, it's become commonplace. Yet it's anything but common. You know, those of us who remember a world before cell phones, and it did exist, 
remember what it was like to memorize or know a bunch of phone numbers. When I was in sales or running companies in the 90s, I probably had, I don't know, 40 or 50 numbers that I used all the time that I had memorized. Maybe more. And that wasn't unusual in any way. But today, after years of smartphones and speed dial, I'm lucky to remember my wife's phone number without looking. And I think it's more than just my age. I think as the memory of our phones grow, our personal memory can shrink. Which is fine when it comes to phone numbers. But it's dangerous when it comes to Scripture. I say that because this part of Psalm 19 lists two extraordinary benefits that no other texts can give. You know, there are some great works of literature out there. They can make you cry. They can make you laugh. They can make you happy. They can help you understand things. They can motivate you to action. But how many can do what verse 107 says, which is to give you life? Or what verse 111 says, which is to provide joy in the face of adversity. Or even eternal joy in the midst of suffering. You know, the psalmist didn't just appreciate Scripture because it helped him make decisions, helped him fix his problems, made him a better version of him. It gave him life. And it gave him joy. He loved the Word of God because he loved the God of the Word. He hadn't grown tired of it through familiarity. As he learned it, his appreciation for God grew. He lived with the not knowing and loved that which he knew. You know, one of the funny things that happened with Henry and his concussion was that he became very agitated over the fact that he didn't have his phone. And he kept asking about it probably at least 60 or 70 times in a four-hour period. And so the exchange would go like this. Where's my phone? Dad has it. Can I see it? No. What kind of phone is it? iPhone 7 Plus, which he bought with his first month's pay as a lifeguard. And then he'd get this big grin that would spread over his face, and he'd say, sweet. I have an iPhone 7 Plus. Henry got to enjoy the newness of his phone over and over and over again, even if it only lasted for a few seconds before he forgot about it and he had to ask the question again. But what if we approach God's Word with the same eagerness and the same excitement every time we opened it? Maybe you'd approach it every day with new eyes, with eagerness. And maybe you wouldn't actually mouth the word sweet every time you looked at it, but that's exactly how you'd feel. A faithful memory knows Scripture, it values it, and it recognizes its eternal value. So, summarizing what the psalm meant then, God's Word produces faithful feet that are obedient feet. God's Word produces faithful words of praise and desire to know God more fully and completely. And finally, 
God's Word produces a faithful memory that stores Scripture in your heart. And that brings real joy and eternal reward. And it helped the psalmist live with the not knowing and love that which he knew. So what about now? What about today? How is this psalm different for us as we hear it today? And there's three ways that I want to talk about. One is we have more of God's Word. Second is we have more of God. The third is, as a result, we have more light. So more Word, more God, more light. So let's start with Scripture itself. We have more of it than the psalmist did. God's revelation of Himself is more complete today. It's a fuller picture than the psalmist had back then. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is not of crucial or critical importance for us. You know, one of our go-to texts that helps us think rightly about the Bible, about the Word of God, is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So for starters, Paul tells us here that all Scripture comes from God. That's both the Old and the New Testament. Furthermore, the all Scripture here in this verse, at the time of the writing of this epistle, principally refers to the Old Testament, since the epistles were among the first of the New Testament writings. But in this verse, we see the foundational elements of our belief about God's Word. First, it comes from God. It is breathed out by Him. And because of that, it's without error. And because it comes from God and is without error, we can trust it. As verse 16 says, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Which means it is an authority over us. It is authoritative. So the Word of God has authority of us, and not only is it without error and authoritative, it is sufficient. As verse 17 says, it is sufficient to equip you and me for every good work. God's Word is inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. You know, a quick aside here, that's why we work so hard at Bethel to make the point of every text, the point of the sermon the point of the text. That's what we call expository preaching because the power to change hearts, to give hope, to give life, as Psalm 119 says, doesn't rest in my words, thankfully, for you and me, or even Ross's words, or any other preacher's words, but in the very words of God. God graciously uses and gifts men and women to help others understand what His Word means, to explain it, to open it up. But the real power lies in the words of God Himself, not man. So that's the first difference for us today, is we have more words of God. The second is we have more God. Now what do I mean by that? God existed before the creation of time. 
He's eternal. He isn't growing. So what I mean by that is that the Word-made text is really about the Word-made flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. Here's what the Apostle John says about Him, Jesus, in the beginning of His Gospel. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then later down in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, we sometimes wrongly think that there isn't grace in the Old Testament. It's all through Scripture. God's revelation of Himself to us is gracious. The covenants are gracious. Man didn't deserve them. The choice of Abraham, the election of Israel, all of those are acts of grace. Not because there was anything worthy or attractive in them. Take the Noahic covenant. So, you know the story. Man is so evil that God wipes out all of mankind, covers the earth in water, saves one family. They hit the dry ground. God makes a covenant with them. And as part of that covenant, they get to eat meat for the first time. You might not know this. Everyone before Noah was a vegetarian. But then... Genesis 9-3 comes along. It says, God says to Noah, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. So, Genesis 9-3 tells us that barbecue is an act of grace. And it still is today, at least in Texas. But when the eternal Son of God steps out of heaven and puts on flesh, when the word of the text became the word of flesh, when Jesus lived a life of obedience, He lived a life that fulfilled God's law, and though He was righteous, though He was sinless, though He was blameless, He was still persecuted by the wicked. Not only persecuted, but executed on a horrific cross as an act of grace, as an act of love to pay the price for our sin, to bear our punishment in our place. He took death. And that is how we understand grace in a fuller and deeper way than the psalmist did. So not only do we have more God by a fuller understanding of grace offered through faith in Jesus. We have more God in that the Holy Spirit has come and one of the ministries of the Spirit is to guide us to truth, to help us understand God's Word, to even help us remember God's Word. As Jesus said in John 14, 26, that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's true for the apostles. It's true for us today. So more of the Word of God, more God, which includes a fuller understanding of grace. But before I move on to the next one, I want to do a little experiment here. I'll do that by asking a few questions. The questions are this. How do you feel about the words used to describe God's Word in this song? Words like law. Words like statutes. Words like rules. Decisions. Here's how Tim Keller classifies the three possible reactions to God's law. So if you don't like these answers, you can be mad at Tim Keller and not me. So here are the three. First is, to the unsaved, the law is their enemy because it announces their condemnation. To the unsaved, it is the enemy. To the legalist, the statutes are a master that robs you of your freedom. To the unsaved, an enemy. To the legalist, a master. And finally, to the spiritual man. The rules of God are a servant that helps him or her more clearly see the character of God and the works of Jesus. You all confess, as a freedom-loving American, I went with my first reaction, my first thought that popped into my head. I've got to admit, those words feel heavy. They feel restrictive. Maybe even oppressive or limiting. Which must mean, by Tim Keller's estimation, that I've got a fair amount of legalists still yet to die in me. I hope as you thought about those words that you did better on the quiz than I did. So, more words of God, more God, and as a result then, more light. Jesus is the greater light. Psalm 119 tells us that the Word made text is a lamp to our feet. But the Gospel of John in verse 4 tells us that the Word made flesh is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So let me illustrate it this way. This is the kind of lamp that the psalmist was referring to. It's not the actual lamp. It's not worth, like, millions of dollars. This is a replica. Probably only cost a dollar or two. But you can see that this lamp is not capable of producing much light. Now, here's a light. This is 500 lumens, which is 50 times more powerful than a single candle. And it will light all my path all the way out and probably all the way across the street if it were nighttime. There's no doubt that it's a much more powerful, much more effective light 
than that little lamp. I don't know how much difference it is, mathematical difference. You know, the light of man versus the light of billions of men. Maybe it's a billion times brighter, Jesus versus the light the psalmist refers to here. I don't know exactly how much it is, but there's no doubt that Jesus is the better light. But here's the point. Even though we love the Word of God, even though it brings us eternal joy, it gives and offers life and hope and peace, we don't worship a book. We worship a man, Jesus, the Word made flesh. And we love the Word of the Lord because all of it points us to our Lord, Jesus. Helps us know Him better. Helps us love Him more completely. It helps us live with the not knowing and love that which we know, which is Him. Just so much better. You know, that's my prayer for me, and it's my prayer for all of you, is that we would know Him and love Him more. And that through faith in Jesus, we would explore the depths of His Word, and they would give us faithful feet because of our love for Him, give us faithful words of praise that allow us to worship in spirit and in truth, and that we grow deeper in our relationship with Him, and that He would give us faithful memories, memories that recall His words of truth, the words of life, and the words of hope. And in doing so, it would help us live in peace with the not knowing and love Jesus, the Son of God, whom we know who is the light of the world. You know, these phones are not evil. In fact, they can be useful. They can entertain us. They can inform us. They can connect us in new ways. They even help us remember and learn. And they certainly reduce the time of not knowing. They can even provide a little bit of light. But here's something they can't do that Psalm 119 says the Word of God can. The Word of the Lord helps us discern right from wrong. The Word of the Lord gives life through the Word made flesh. And only the Word of the Lord can give you eternal joy leading you to a greater knowledge of the Lord of the Word who is Jesus Christ. So let's pray.